Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine, and over six podcasts, I and my co-host, the CIPD's Katie Jacobs, will be asking experts to dispense with the here and now, embrace the art of the possible, and ponder, what if? What if no one had to work? We recruited at random, or we abolished HR. In this episode, we'll be asking, what if we all told the truth at work? Back in 1995, clinical psychologist Brad Blanton published a self-help book intriguingly and provocatively titled Radical Honesty. Its central argument was that not expressing to friends, partners or bosses what we really feel or think is a major cause of stress in our lives. The book quickly became a bestseller and in 1997, Blanton trademarked the phrase. The idea was soon making inroads into corporate life, with former Google and Apple executive Kim Scott, for example, publishing Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. It argued that to be a good manager, you have to put aside everything you've learned about only saying nice things and learn to challenge directly. Perhaps inevitably, Silicon Valley firms have been in the vanguard of this, most notably Netflix. Its philosophy of radical candour is one of the central tenets of its culture of freedom and responsibility, made famous by the publication in 2009 of that infamous culture deck. A concept similarly making its way into the collective consciousness is speaking truth to power, with many organisations now the proud owners of speak-up mechanisms, forums through which colleagues can venture ideas, call out malpractice and tell senior leaders exactly where they're going wrong. Following the experience of the pandemic and given our new uncertain normal, the tide has apparently turned on command and control leadership towards something more consultative and two-way. Given the various corporate scandals of recent years, the urgent need for whistleblowing in some situations has also been thrown into sharp relief. So appetite for truth-telling at work is apparently strong and growing. But dispensing with white lies and telling the unvarnished truth is still not something that comes naturally to many of us. So how might this all work in practice? To help answer this, I spoke to Megan Rates, Professor of Leadership and Dialogue at Ashridge Executive Education and co-author of Speak Up and of Dialogue in Organisations. I also spoke to Erin Meyer, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at INSEAD. Erin is also author of The Culture Map and co-author, along with Netflix co-founder Reed Hastings, of No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. Erin's initial first-hand experience of radical candour at Netflix makes clear how shocking this practice will still seem to many and how carefully it must be deployed, but also how valuable it can be. Here she is describing what happened when a Netflix employee gave her some incredibly honest feedback right in the middle of a presentation she was giving during a breakout session. As I was walking around, there was one woman who was speaking in this really animated way, like she's kind of waving her arms around and her group of colleagues really like listening to her intently. And when she saw me, she beckoned me over. She said to me, you know, in front of her colleagues, she said, I just want to tell you, Erin, that I really feel that the way that you are facilitating the discussion from the stage is undermining your point, because here you are talking about cultural differences, but then you're asking 
asking for volunteers to answer your questions and only Americans are raising their hand. She said, I really feel that this is sabotaging your entire presentation. And I remember when I heard that, I had this moment of, oh my gosh, she is right. What am I going to (laughs) do? And I also felt a little startled, like no one had ever given me feedback in the middle of a keynote before, like right smack in the middle. Uh, But in any case, I was able to kind of get over that. And I had about, um, I don't know, 90 seconds before I had to go back on stage. So I kind of went into this deep meditative state and I I came up with a, a solution for how to do this better. And when I came back on stage, I instead of asking for volunteers, I decided to first ask for, you know, someone from Brazil and then someone from Singapore and then someone from Japan. And I actually think that that feedback saved my presentation. So that was the first time I really saw like all of the elements of truthfulness at work, that it hurts. It's surprising. I actually think I had some kind of feelings of dislike for the woman as she was giving it to me. Like, how dare she tell me that there at that moment? Uh, But in the end, it really helped me. So radical honesty has huge potential for improving individual performance. It also has massive implications for organisational performance, both commercial and ethical. But only if leaders can empower more junior colleagues to speak up, says Megan Rates. There are many situations where it would be helpful if we can have more open dialogue. And some of those situations, for example, might be feedback and developing ourselves and others. Understanding diversity, equity and inclusion and discussing how we might really have to change in order to meet climate change agendas. So there are all sorts of topics and all sorts of what what we might call wicked problems that demand us to be fairly radically open The question is, how do we make those sorts of conversations less radical? Increasingly, one of the most important leadership practices that there is, is to seek difference in perspective. And in order to do that, leaders need to accept that their perspective on the world is partial, that they have blind spots and that they really want to find out what those are. And if you can help leaders understand that that is a practice, an essential practice that is the foundation for things like compliance and innovation and inclusion and talent retention, if we can develop leaders to be insatiably curious about what they don't know then we might find that we start creating cultures where people are more able and more rewarded for speaking up with radical candor in the first place. Erin agrees that feedback that travels upwards through the hierarchy of an organisation is even more valuable than that which travels down or between colleagues of the same rank. Truth, speaking truth to power. I mean, that's where truthfulness really starts to become useful. If you have the person who brings coffee to the organization uh, is making some mistakes and no one tells him, (laughs) okay, it's not a big deal. We just don't like our coffee very much. 
But if the CFO is behaving in a way that is jeopardizing the success of the organization and no one tells her, that's a, a huge cost to the company. The stakes are high then in getting truthful feedback just right, particularly when it comes to challenging authority. But while appetite for honest, transparent and listening cultures might be strong among organisations, few are apparently executing this as successfully as the likes of Netflix. So where are most going wrong? And what steps do they need to take to get this off the ground? Megan first, then Erin. So many organisations are trying to enable their employees to speak up more for a variety of really good reasons. One of the biggest mistakes they do is they point at the person that they want to speak up. They see them as a kind of individual and they say, speak up, be brave. Now, that perspective of the world sees that individual out of context. And what our research shows is that actually that person speaking up depends on the environment that they're in. It depends how leaders listen up. And the same applies when we start talking about radical honesty or radical candor. It's very easy to talk about, does that person tell the truth? But that truth and whether they tell it is defined and determined by the context that they find themselves in. So truth telling is systemic and it's relational. So rather than seeing it as a kind of individual heroic endeavor, we need to see it as kind of situated. I have found that over the last few years, there's been a a huge number of companies that are focusing on trying to develop an organizational culture where there's a lot more honest and direct feedback going on. That seems to be just a, a big wave. And what I've also found is that they've had enormous difficulties actually getting it to happen. So they're talking a lot about feedback. We all need to be honest with one another. But people don't do it, right? I mean, they don't do it because why would I risk my relationship with you or even my reputation? Why would I risk making you angry? So I believe in order to get a culture of feedback going in an organization, uh, there's two things that you need to do. The first is that you need to start putting feedback on the agenda. It's such a simple point. If each manager says to her team, you know, I want each of you every quarter to have a one-on-one meeting with each of the other members of our team. And in that meeting, you get together just to give one another feedback. And while you're giving that feedback, you can give some positive feedback, but you need to make sure that you state clearly what you think the other person can do in order to improve their performance. At Netflix, when I first heard about this, I thought it was crazy. (laughs) But what they do is something that they call a 360 live feedback dinners. And with a live feedback dinner, you get together maybe once a year, your team gets together, ideally over a meal. And over several hours, you take turns. Uh, We go around the table and each person gives me feedback one at a time as to what he or she thinks that I 
could do in order to do a better job in my work. Because when one individual gives you feedback privately, there's always kind of an an individual dynamic. You never know, is that really about that person more than about me? But when these groups came together like this, it became really clear to each person what were just individual opinions and then what were the, the really big elements that each person needed to be working on. So I actually found those to be extremely useful. The second point is that it's important that you are teaching your employees how to give feedback in addition to setting up moments for the feedback to be given. And um, at Netflix, I found that uh, people had a lot of instructions that they had learned throughout their, their time. And I tried to kind of put them together in a little bit of a framework. And I call that the four A's of feedback. So the first, aim to assist. Second, the feedback has to be actionable. It has to be clear to you and to the person you're giving the feedback to what they could do in order to do a better job. The third A has to do with receiving the feedback. And that's that when you receive the feedback, you need to show appreciation. When people are getting feedback, they always say, thank you. Thank you. I heard you. I appreciate you telling me that. And then the fourth A of feedback, if you actually get a culture of feedback, of truthfulness going in your organization, then it's up to the receiver to accept or decline it. Megan agrees that the how of giving feedback is just as important to consider as the forums and mechanisms used, with psychological safety, a concept popularised chiefly by Harvard Business School's Amy Edmondson, a key check and balance to brutal honesty. We sort of need an ongoing dialogue about dialogue, and that's not happening nearly enough. The whole issue around cancel culture and what might happen if we speak up becomes an issue when we can't hold spaces in our organisation that allow us to enter into this sort of relationship. You can't have the big conversations unless you're making space for the small ones. When we differ on issues that really matter to us, in order to be able to voice those and hear difference, it's very helpful to have a relationship as a foundation to do that. And in order to have a relationship and a trusting relationship, we need to create spaces where people know one another, when they can see one another's intent and then begin to respect differences. And again, you know, partly because of the pandemic and working virtually, but not just because of that, we've started to squeeze those sorts of spaces out of our workplace. And that has huge consequences. Kim Scott, who talks about radical candor, has emphasised, particularly recently, by radical, we don't just mean say it all. There's the important role of care and intent behind that. And similarly, you know, a related topic, Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety. Amy has been really clear in saying that doesn't mean we're all lovely to each other. We need that challenging edge. We need that radical honesty with it. But what both Amy and Kim here are suggesting is that this radical honesty sits within a system and it has to go hand in hand with our care and our intent. The technical and logistical mechanisms for staff giving feedback are still really important to get right, however, particularly in the case of upward feedback to leaders and the wider organisation. 
With so many digital tools at their fingertips, companies are spoilt for choice with ways of doing this. But beware leaving this entirely to your HR software, Megan warns. I think you need to have a range of different forums to suit a range of different needs and preferences. So I've interviewed people that, for example, speak up much more readily and easily online, on Zoom, in the chat function than they ever used to when it was face-to-face in an organisation. I've met other people that are completely silenced by it and mainly speak up in sort of informal, face-to-face situations. I think there's a big role for managers to think through for their teams. What do they know helps people to really speak up? And how can they create those different sorts of environments? And one thing I will say is that I interviewed a leader in a global retail organization, and she was telling me how important it was that the executive team there spent so much time in shops, really listening and finding out what goes on. And she had a great quote. She said, you cannot delegate your listening skills and listening responsibility to pulse surveys. And that's what I see many organizations doing. You know, they've got to a stage where the way that employees speak up is through a survey, through a pulse survey. And whilst that has a role, if that's your only method for hearing what's going on in the organization, then you will be tripping up soon. Another critical potential pitfall, going back to Erin's first slightly bruising encounter with Radical Candor and her work mapping different nationalities' working preferences, is not factoring cultural context into how feedback is delivered. Erin describes Netflix's journey, making the concept work in its non-US offices. I actually remember having an early discussion with the founder of Netflix where he said to me, you know, Aaron, we've got this really strong culture and now we're we're opening offices in Singapore and in Sao Paulo and in Tokyo. Do you think that our culture of candor can work in those countries? And my first response was no. <laughs> I having now experienced that candor, that spontaneous and often very blunt uh, candor that was going Going on in California, I just could not imagine how that could work in a Japanese or Brazilian office, as those are cultures where there's so much emphasis put on group harmony and on preserving the relationship. And culturally, the feedback is given in very soft and subtle ways in those cultures. They did make a big effort at the beginning to push their culture of candor to into these countries. And what they did at first was kind of take the managers from California, send them out to, to Tokyo and Singapore and train people to give feedback on the fly, spontaneously in as direct a way as possible. And it actually was making things very difficult. So I remember it in Tokyo, there was at one point that the atmosphere had gotten so aggressive in that environment that no one wanted to work for Netflix Japan. But then they took a a much better approach. And I think the second route is one that we can put up as an example for how all organizations should approach this. They said, look, 
Our goal in every country in the world, in every one of our offices, is to get the feedback out there, to get it out there in a way that is truthful and actionable, but is not going to break the relationships in a way that will be culturally appropriate. So dear Netflix employees in Brazil, please get together and think about, you know, what is candor going to look like here? And dear employees in Japan, get together, you know, figure out what methods you're going to be using using here in Tokyo in order to make sure that the feedback gets out there in a way that's culturally appropriate. And actually, it was fascinating because the Japanese decided that they wanted to use the 360 feedback dinners. They found that um, when they could prepare and get ready and they understood why they were giving the feedback and recognize that the whole thing was for the good of the, the group, that they actually were more comfortable with it than giving one-on-one feedback randomly throughout the day. That really surprised me but shows that you really need to leave this in the court of the culture that you're working with. But what if organisations are victims of their own success? Is there a danger of the floodgates being opened and then HR in particular struggling to sift through a deluge of thoughts, ideas, complaints, angry rambling missives? After all, research shows that if feedback isn't acted on in a timely manner, people will soon go back to not bothering to speak up at all. The bigger problem is helping employees to speak up rather than the situation of, oh, my gosh, they're speaking up too much. But I do come across that. So when we talk about honesty and speaking up, we need to map out what do we want people to be speaking up about? What do they feel able to speak up about and what don't they feel able to speak up about? So one thing I would say in terms of the information overload is to think very carefully about what sort of questions we ask people and perhaps what sort of questions we can ask that enable people to think really well about things. By the way, one mistake that organisations can make is to go, okay, we'll get people to speak up only if they've got a solution to the issue that they're speaking up about. And whilst that can have some benefits, of course, what it does also do is it means people stay silent unless they have a solution. And many of the challenges that we face don't have an easy solution. And if you are getting a lot of information in, one of the biggest risks you need to watch out for is appearing not to act on the information that you're receiving. We know from our data, we've surveyed over you know, about 11,000 people now globally, and around 25% of respondents believe that they'll be ignored if they speak up with a problem. A quarter of employees. You need to show people that there is something happening with what they're saying. You might not be able to act on it, but at least fill in the gaps for people because otherwise they'll do it themselves and they'll assume there's no point. And over time, they will stop speaking or they'll leave. And that's really what you don't want. Such an information overload can, in fact, go both ways, though. Spurred by the desire to create cultures of transparency, many organisations are now far more upfront about certain high-level decisions and information that in the past would have been shrouded in secrecy. Details on the business's performance, for example, or executive pay. So how do well-meaning companies ensure staff are not simply overwhelmed with a barrage of complex information they neither have the time nor ability to digest? How do they ensure full transparency does not simply become another form of misinformation or obfuscation? 
there is a lot to be said for opening up access to information. So we interviewed an entrepreneur who took over an ex-car manufacturing plant in the UK and the workers there were really upset with how they'd been treated and some of the working conditions. And this entrepreneur, his, his approach was to open up the books, particularly the finance books, and just say, right, this is what's going on. This is what we're facing. If he'd just done that, in a way, that's not that's not very helpful because he also needed to train and help employees to understand what that information means. And there is a chance of kind of complete overload there. And then there's also, you know, what circumstances and situations are you doing this in? If you're a startup organization and from the word go, everything is kind of transparent and open. And that's the way people join the organization. It's the way people come to behave. It's a very different situation from trying to introduce that into a global, you know, a, a multinational organizations with, you know, 100,000 employees. You can't just sort of simply open it up, but you can start to experiment. And that's what we're seeing many organizations try is they might choose a particular department or a particular team and start to experiment with sharing access to information and decision making because the two kind of comes hand in hand here so it's a big big cultural change it depends on the context in which you're doing it and i am generally in favor of opening up and being more transparent but with a deep understanding of how political that is. So transparency and creating cultures of constructive honesty are fiendishly difficult to get right, particularly given how nascent many organisations' efforts are currently and how unused to being frank many of us are in all aspects of our lives, personal and work. But encouraging people to speak their truth to each other, to leaders and to the wider organisation can be highly valuable not least to stop them from feeling so ignored and powerless that they ultimately leave, probably armed with information that at best could have helped their colleagues and the business thrive, at worst could have highlighted major wrongdoing or organisational failings. So the question organisations need to ask themselves is, can you handle the truth? You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.